This presentation is from UX Australia 2015, held in Sydney. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. So that's all my announcements. So the next most important job is to introduce Kenneth. Um, Kenneth is independent at the moment, has previously worked at Twitter, has previously worked at Clearleft. Um, I've known him for a long time, knew he was going to be an awesome closing speaker. So welcome to the stage. I might just move these uh, paper planes. Oh, yeah, I should, I should just throw them into the audience, really, shouldn't I? Never mind. Anyway, sorry if I've crushed your special efforts. <clears throat> okay, well, thank you for that very warm welcome. Um, I've got to start with a warning, actually, that there's a bit of politics in this talk. Um, because how can there not be? How can you detach ethics from uh, politics, or even design from politics? My hope is that even if you disagree with some of the perspectives that I have myself, or the conclusions that I come to, um, I hope at least you'll respect some of the questions I ask and ponder them for yourselves. So my, my case today is going to be that it's, it's time for us to start taking ethics seriously within our profession. But it's kind of a difficult topic to introduce, I think, for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, I think when we think about ethics, we associate it with dusty history, dead Greeks, Aristotle, or Kant, or Popper, or Rousseau, or, you know, these, these wonderful philosophers. I think it would be an awful talk if I were to uh, come and give the sort of grand history of ethics. Because for me, ethics isn't about history. It's contemporary. It's about fundamental choices that we make every single day. It's nothing less than a pledge to take our moral choices, and by extension, life itself, seriously. I also think when you talk about ethics, it's tricky because there is no immediate gratification. It's not possible for me to stand up on stage and give definitive guidance, to put up case studies and say, here you go, this is ethic ethically correct behavior. It's an invisible, abstract kind of topic. So what I'll do instead of giving definitive answers is I'll dive into areas in our work, in our everyday practice, that I think deserve deeper ethical consideration. And instead of answers, I'll pose questions. And as I say, hopefully those will be questions that you can ponder for yourselves and come to your own conclusions and maybe even change your own behaviors. I'm going to start with the idea of playing God. This is something that comes up quite a lot in ethical uh, discussion, ethical debate. What we talk about, what we mean when we talk about the idea of playing God is usually when technology intervenes in patterns of life. You know, we, we, we recognize it when we talk about the ethics of conception or genetics. Essentially, something that interferes with a natural order, what would otherwise have happened without that intervention. Well, I hope, I hope to make the case that actually design is, maybe stretching it a bit, but design is often um, similar to the acts of playing God that we talk about in those ethical uh, circumstances. Um, one example would be um, genetically modifying uh, an unborn fetus uh, for certain traits or to... Uh, reduce the risk of certain uh, diseases. Um, let's have some other examples. We can selectively breed dogs for desirable traits. We can design and install a lightning rod at a soccer pitch so that the players aren't at risk during a thunderstorm. Let's take this even further. We can design a table. We can put a vase upon it so that the vase doesn't fall under the influence of gravity and shatter. 
All of those, I think, we can see them as design challenges, and we can see them, some of them even as, as ethical challenges. There is a case to say that design is the act of playing God. Our products, the things we make, they intervene in environments. They change outcomes. So I think many of the discussions and many of the challenges that we consider as ethical challenges are also design challenges, and vice versa. Let's start by looking at the ethics of physical space. Now, physical space, we tend to have a relatively strong democratic influence. Um, People have a good say in how the physical environment around them is shaped, generally. We have councils, we have town planners, we have architects and so on who create the destinations and the routing options. They create the areas we want to go and the the means of us getting to those. And in the the construction of that space, there is this uh, public consultation, there's planning permission, and ultimately there's always the, the looming threat of the ballot box. If we're not happy with the way that our public spaces have evolved then we, in in democratic nations, we can elect out the people who've taken us down the wrong path. Digital space has some similarities. I think it has, um, you know, similarly, it has destinations. It has routes and transport. The destinations would be websites, apps, that kind of thing. The routing options, the transport might be browsers, might be app stores. And there's a strong case to say we can inhabit digital space in quite similar ways to how we inhabit physical space. I would wager that everyone in this room probably spends longer in their favorite social network than they do at the local shopping mall. But these spaces, these digital spaces, they're largely under private control. It's companies and corporations and startups who generally make these spaces. And they also set the rules for behavior within those spaces. There's less of that democratic influence. There's no public consultation on the same kind of scale. Now, of course, you can say that capitalism allows a bit of a uh, you know, a route out here. One of the precepts of capitalism is obviously that if you're not happy with the service you're getting with a particular provider, you're very welcome to leave and to choose an alternative provider. But I think we've reached a stage now where some digital spaces are actually becoming almost public utilities. They're so interwoven in our lives. I think it's a very big request, for instance, to ask someone to abandon Google search or Facebook, these things that are so deeply interwoven in our online lives. So the upshot of this is that it really falls to designers. It falls to people like you and to people like me to make sure that the digital spaces that we create uh, nurture a positive impact for the world. We are the people who have to represent the needs of the user. We are also the people who have to help decide what a positive impact even means. I think ethics can help us untangle that because it's a heck of a, a, a tricky problem. One of the clear features about digital work is that it offers us enormous scale at very low cost. Uh, That means then that the work we we do can have significantly high impact. The decisions that we make can affect thousands of people, millions of people, even in some cases billions of people. Now these are frankly unfathomable numbers. We're not really equipped to consider what that means. We're not good at handling that kind of scale. We're much better face-to-face or as small groups Uh, You know, when we start thinking about communities or societies or populations, I think that's a a very difficult thing to ask. There's a danger when we work at that kind of scale that we let people become statistics. Let's take the example of A-B testing. If I work at, let's say, Facebook, and I put out a a 1% A-B test with just 1% of, say, my, my user base, the change I make, you know, speculative, not sure if it's going to work, 
That's going to 13 million people. That's obviously larger than you know, the population of London. When we're working at that kind of astronomical, astronomical scale, I think we have a duty to find a way to honor the individual stories within that 13 million. The user who loses photos, precious photos of their loved ones, that because we've made a change to that system, suddenly they no longer have access to them. Or the users who used to rely on our product and now we've significantly disrupted the mental models they've had, their understanding of how to draw value from that service. So we need to find a way when operating at that kind of enormous scale to balance this huge data piece with small qualitative research. We need to understand the individual impact that we have with our work. Even if we get that, it's still not terribly easy to balance, I would say. Let's say we have evidence, we have research that suggests that 90% of our users will view a change we're making positively. But 10% of our users strongly dislike it. They hate it. They're, they're not going to uh, be at all happy. It's going to damage them. How do we weigh those off against each other? How do we make a decision about which of those is net positive or a net negative interaction? Scale also brings diversity in our user bases. And the physical world, again, we have the idea of universal access of cities and facilities designed for all. In digital, there are similar questions, and we have some similar answers. You know, we, we do talk about accessibility, and that's, and that's good, and that's right. But I think its current framing is disappointing. I, I think we're treating it kind of in the, wrong, in the wrong context, in the wrong shape. Right now, I, I too often hear accessibility talked about as either a bit of a nuisance, or worse for me, actually, a solved problem an engineering technique that just happens downstream. You know, it's just put in some alt tags, set your ARIA roles, and then your accessibility is sorted. Well, I don't think that's doing the topic the justice that it deserves. It's a design challenge. It's an ethical challenge for me. When we talk about accessibility, I think really what we're talking about is making a value judgment. Who is worthy of our effort? Indeed, we're making a value judgment on who we think is worthy of being considered human. So I think it's, it's important, and it, the time is right for us to reframe accessibility as a key issue of social justice. To be blunt, I think if you're knowingly creating a product online today that is inaccessible, you are directly contributing to the social repression of disabled users. Now, we have laws for this sort of thing, obviously. Americans with Disabilities Act, we have the DDA in the UK, I'm sure in Australia and nearby you have uh, similar protections. But ethical conduct suggests to me that we should go beyond just the mere legal minimum. We should find ways to convince businesses that accessibility has return on investment uh, value, but also that it's actually acting in a way that's, that's simply right. It's acting with compassion and inclusivity and, dare I say it, even love. I think we also make... Um, inaccurate assumptions, not only about phys uh, physical and cognitive capabilities, but also the technical capabilities that people have in their devices and their, their infrastructure. It's very easy for designers, you know, it's constant in our world to um, assume 4G connections, blazing fast top-end handsets and so on. When we make those kind of false assumptions of our user bases, then we isolate people who are not like ourselves. Are we comfortable with that? Now, we may encounter the argument that, well, sometimes these people are going to be less profitable, therefore we have to focus on a certain market that's going to have a high propensity to pay for the service and so on. But don't people with less income or less dollar potential deserve high-quality digital experiences? 
if we think that's the case, then how do we actually make that happen? Another crunch point for me in um, the ethics of design is the idea of persuasion. And persuasion is, is kind of central to what we do. And I see two main audiences for the persuasive work that we do. One is we try to convince stakeholders, colleagues. And then, secondly, we also try to convince our users. Let's handle the first group for stakeholders. How do we present the work we do? How do we frame the advice that we offer? What I typically see in the user, user experience community is the adoption of a scientific stance. Um, essentially trying to offer some rigor, some backup, some scientific bedrock for a lot of the decisions and the recommendations that we're putting forward. I think there's some validity in this, in this viewpoint. I think, for instance, user testing, if done well, um, will reduce risk. It will improve the accuracy and the confidence that you can have in the designs that are about to ship. But I think it's a significant overstep to say that the user-centered design process is scientific. Now, I trained as a scientist. I, I understand the scientific method, and there's no way that it, um, that it applies to what we call user experience design today. It doesn't meet the criteria. It's very hard to quantify, and critically, it's not replicable. A situation, a solution that works in situation A may be completely inappropriate in situation B. We can't extrapolate and say there are underpinning scientific laws and criteria here. Design is very much a subjective activity, not an objective activity. So I think we get onto, onto thin ice very quickly when we overstate the rigor of the solutions that we offer. And I see particularly the user experience industry falling back on pseudoscience or poorly understood science uh, in fairly flimsy ways. Neuroscience is a, is a classic example. Now, neuroscience is certainly a science, and it's a highly complex one. And my understanding is we actually don't know all that much about the workings of the brain, the physiology, and you know, all, that, all that sort of side of things. But I see it crop up far too frequently in justifications for our work, in ways that would make true scientists shudder. Um, I have this, this um, sort of rule of thumb that whenever I see a blog post or an article that contains the words, your brain, I can pretty much write it off as nonsense. We also rely on things that have significantly weak evidence. One example, a fairly trivial, trivial one, but it's the golden ratio. We've all heard of the golden ratio. Um, mathematically, an interesting number, um, or an interesting uh, ratio, I suppose. Um, and we're told that it's aesthetically pleasing to humans, and that's been known for millennia. We see it in Greek temples. We see it in nature. We see it in the, the uh, shells of snails. We see it uh, in the heads of sunflowers. We see it in galaxy spirals and so on. It's not true. Um, the, there is no evidence that the golden ratio is in any way aesthetically favorable to any comparable ratio. Um, the, the Parthenon, the, you know, the old buildings were not built anything like the golden ratio. The shell we see on a snail is not a golden spiral. The spiral in the galaxies is not a golden spiral. Um, but yet we rely on this, and we use that. Well, why do we use these scientific associations? You know, why do we do it? Is it because we think they're true? Because we think that's the ethical approach? Do we do it to build trust, to build credibility? Or do we do it to kind of help us win arguments? Or is it actually to mythologize our craft? to build this wall of esoteric legitimacy around what we do and thus keep others just that little bit distant. Well, in truth, it's probably a bit of all of those. I think the ethical designer is the one who can speak with honesty about the rigor that she offers. The 
better designers that I've worked with um, tend to be the ones who use less categorical language. If they have a hunch, they call it a hunch. They don't pile in with certainty. And the great thing is that leaves them headroom. When they are um, convinced of a particular approach, they have that bank of trust, they have that leeway. Their colleagues know they're not crying wolf. So admitting what is rigorous about our approaches and what isn't, I actually think is generally going to be a better approach for all of us, for our entire industry. It's going to help us get better results. So then I mentioned the second group of people that we try to persuade, which is customers, our, our end users. And all design is persuasive. Um, you cannot not communicate, you know, all that, all that sort of stuff. And we've seen an increase in this sort of thing recently as well with uh, the rise in discursive technology. So that's technology that essentially poses questions to the end user and asks them to question their own behavior. And, you know, we see lots of applications for this that are pretty positive. You know, health and finance are two verticals that come up quite a bit. Health, you know, encouraging people to, say, quit smoking or to improve their fitness. Um, finance, encouraging people to plan appropriately for the future. Um, these, are, these are good things. I think I'm fairly confident in saying that. But we have to recognize that these kind of techniques are prone to murkier applications as well. One form this takes um, is, is this idea of what I call experienceization. Um, let me give an example of what I mean. There, there, there's a quote, and in fact there are two quotes that are fairly common. I see them quite a lot in sort of user-centered discussions. One is that users don't buy products, they buy experiences. Or users don't buy products, they buy better versions of themselves. And that's sometimes true, for sure. But we see that kind of language, I think, used in another field, where I think it's probably less welcome, and that's in the advertising field. You no longer see a, uh, you know, an advert for a film. You, you, you never see an advert for a film. It's always an advert for the movie event of the year. It's this inflation of language. And I think it's, it's relatively deplorable, frankly, in the advertising field, but yet I see it far too frequently in the user experience field. And you know, sometimes people just buy a spade, not the experience of digging. So this idea of inflating the language that we have, it doesn't seem right to me. It, it, it causes me pause. This idea of positioning very functional items as real lifestyle enrichers, I don't think is really ethically any different than the inflation we see in advertising. Now, when we're talking about persuasion with regard to users, we obviously have to make sure that persuasion is in the user's interests, which, which raises the, the fairly obvious follow-up question, who are we to determine what those interests are? And surely the fact that we are paid um, you know, by people who would prefer certain outcomes, does that compromise our neutrality? Does that mean that we're ethical relativists, bending according to the whim of our employers? What checks and balances are in place among our community to prevent abuse there? Because at worst, persuasion becomes nothing more than exploiting human weakness to sell more stuff. Now, the private sector has a mandate, which is obviously to raise shareholder value, to earn revenue for the companies that hire us, and that's why we're there. You can't really question the ethics of that without going all the way back and questioning the ethics of capitalism. But there are ethical challenges, and there are different approaches you can take in doing so, in earning that, in, in that money. And capitalism has a reward system that is relatively short-term focused. Uh, you know, big red lines pointing up, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, stop price. Uh, you, you know, quarter on quarter revenue, all, this, all these sorts of things. 
Are these really the right measures for the kind of outputs that we want to create? Let's give one example, which is gross domestic product. Economists and politicians alike, they're really interested in GDP. They like it. They want to spend time analyzing and hopefully increasing it. GDP is a pretty good measure of economic activity, but it doesn't necessarily correlate with good. If I crash my car, knock down a tree, maybe even break my ankle, something like that, that's going to increase GDP. Someone has to fix my car, the insurance company has to pay out, you've got to replant the thing I knocked over, I have to get medical treatment, etc. That increases the economic activity of my country. But if I teach a child to recycle, that's probably going to have a negligible effect. In fact, it may even have a, a negative effect on GDP. But businesses have what's, what's frequently called a logical positivist mindset. They believe the only meaningful statements are those which can be observed to be true. The outcomes of the sort of things that we build are harder to pin down. They're often intangible. We work with trust and loyalty. Harder things to measure. They resist measurement. You know, you can't weigh love. So how do we reconcile that dis dissonance where businesses want one thing, they want the, that tangibility, they want quantification, and we deal in the more abstract intangibles? Well, one way is we can try and frame those intangibles in those other terms, in more realizable ways. And that's where we try and you know, create ROI figures and so on, and we rely on things like maybe Net Promoter or other techniques to try and put a dollar value on something. And that makes sense. Um, it, it varies in how it's done. Sometimes it's done very well. Sometimes it's done very poorly. Uh, anyone who's around sort of in the early days of the usability sort of movement will remember, uh, you know, sort of Jacob Nielsen-esque um, extrapolations such as, well, if you save everyone in this office, if you save them six seconds by moving this button, then you multiply that by their salary, then you multiply it by the number of days in a year, then you've saved $290,000. Bullshit. Just absolute nonsense. It's gonna, you're going to get laughed out of a boardroom with that kind of thinking. Another way you can reconcile that dissonance is a bit more ambitious and certainly more difficult. You can try and sell the business on the value of intangibles and teach them to say, you know what, even if we can't measure it, this is still a valuable thing for us to do. Now, I love this approach. It's certainly my preferred approach. It's a little bit of an idealistic approach. And as I say, it's a difficult one. But it, you, know, you can make some headway in that way. The other way that we can try and bring those things together is, frankly, we can just get tired and we can give up. And that's what happens, uh, and that's what causes dark patterns and things of that nature to ship. Dark patterns, I'm sure you're all aware, but these are interface choices intended to trick users to behave in ways that are advantageous to us and disadvantageous to the user. I'm comfortable to say that dark patterns are clearly unethical, but there are, of course, shades of gray. It's not a black and white discussion. For one, we have to define what disadvantageous means. Um, one example, it's now actually been outlawed in uh, the European Union, but when you add a product to a shopping cart, some unscrupulous retailers would add an extended warranty. Let's say I'm buying a stereo. And you know, I add this 400 quid stereo, whatever it is, and they add an extended warranty for another 80. And I don't notice, and I check out, and lo and behold, I'm saddled with this thing. I can guarantee someone in the business has argued, ah, but if it breaks, then that person can be really, really glad that we gave them that extended warranty. Now, later on, I'm going to talk about some ways to help evaluate the ethical integrity of, of arguments. I think that one doesn't work. Uh, another one that doesn't work is what's called the dirty hands argument, 
which essentially says, well, no, everyone else does it. Or if we don't, someone else is going to. Uh, There's a saying in ethics, which is that a does does not mean an ought. Just because something is widespread, it doesn't mean that it's right. You know, racism, speeding, you know, these things are still quite prevalent in the world. Now, a company that engages in uh, deploying dark patterns, they're going to see some negative effect. Uh, They might have brand toxicity. They may face even some class class action lawsuits, that kind of thing. Companies have done this analysis. They know the downside, and they still think the gains will exceed that. So it falls often to designers to be the ones standing up and say, I'm not comfortable with this solution. Don't make me do this. And that sort of argument is a tough one, and it requires eternal vigilance, because the kind of company that tends to resort to dark patterns generally has a flawed value system. So you may defeat that argument once, but you can be absolutely assured that that will come up again in another few months. And it's a really tough position to be in. What if I see this happening elsewhere, sort of slightly outside of my control? Maybe even someone else on my team, another designer, has made a decision that I believe is unethical. What do I do? Can I go above his head? Do I step in? How, how do we resolve that? What if I'm told I do this or I lose my job? Do corporate pressures amount to diminish responsibility? I also want to talk about disruption. One of the things we, uh, we've seen very clearly, I think, over the last 10, 15 years is that connected technology is great at killing the middleman. We've seen this mostly in media. Uh, video stores, record labels, newspapers, um, all have withered away in the in a sort of laser-focused beam of technology, if you like. But it's now spreading to other verticals. We're seeing it in personal finance, we're seeing it in lending, taxi services, hotels, and so on. Is that disruption a positive thing or not? We frequently assume so. I think those of us in the industry usually assume that, yes, it is. Uh, and certainly it may well be. But we do have to recognize the politics inherent in that statement. When we consider the targets, if you like, the recipients of that disruption, sometimes we, we sort of shrug our shoulders and say, it's unlucky that they're irrelevant now, but you know, that's the way of the world. Life has to move on. Sometimes they're actually more hostile, and we say they're enemies of progress. But frequently, in fact, maybe even um, you know, most of the time, the people who suffer most of the impact from technological disruption are low-paid service workers uh, who face unemployment, they face shrinking markets, shrinking wages, and so on. And the people who gain from that disruption are frequently the rich, shareholders, actually, of a lot of these companies. If we're not careful, disruption can become a flow from labor to capital. It can become a vector for inequality. There are also legal issues uh, wrapped up in the, the topic of disruption. Some companies have made it almost a habit to selectively ignore certain laws in their quest for disruption and for growing their their presence. These are laws that have been put in place by democratically elected governments for consumer protection. Now, these issues, I think, aren't frequently discussed. Certainly not if we look at, say, the sort of Silicon Valley tech press. You know, I think if we to air these views on those forums, we'd be labeled anti-progressive. But I do think the ethical designer has a duty to consider the political, social, and ethical impact of what we bring to the market. And of course, we have to talk about what what is probably the most pressing ethical issue of our time, uh, the environment. I think this was last year the IPCC put out a report saying that the impact 
of climate change was now severe, pervasive, uh, pervasive and irreversible. When I was doing some research for this talk, I came across kind of a cute idea from Slavoj Zizek, which is that oil is the remnants of a previous planetary catastrophe. You know, the meteor came in, the dinosaurs melted, melted away into this delicious flammable liquid. And blind to the irony of that situation, we're using that stuff again to create another catastrophe. This quote from Victor Papanek uh, sums up designers' role in all of this. There are professions more harmful than industrial design, but only a very few of them. Designers have directly contributed to climate change and to the degradation of the environment. After all, it's we who've designed the gas guzzlers, the pollutants, the landfill. It's absolutely spot on that we should shoulder some of the blame for that. How do we respond to that? Can we redeem ourselves? I think we have to try. I must confess, in my, in my bleaker moments, I find myself thinking that the role of design over the next 50 years is to help the human species survive the subsequent 50 now, sometimes when I, when I get that full on <laughs> with digital people, they sort of lean back in their chair and they think, well, I'm, I'm off the hook. I, I deal with you know, electrons and you know, pixels and things like that. But the tech industry, I don't think it's quite off the hook because, for one, we pursue the most aggressive upgrade cycles in the whole sort of, you know, sphere of consumer goods. Think of the devices that we've all owned in the last decade. Where are they now? And user experience and designers, you know, folks like us, we're actually one of the, the biggest agents of obsolescence here. We're the ones pushing the hardest at the highest capabilities of these devices. We're the ones saying, oh, look what you can do with this new technology. We're the ones that help businesses make decisions to stop supporting technology they deem obsolete. Is that worth the landfill? Is the, the user experience that we create worth the environmental impact that's going to cause? And then, of course, everything that we deliver in the digital world runs on electricity, um, which has this wonderful property of being invisible so we don't really notice the impact it's having, but of course it does plenty of environmental damage just further upstream, but we can't see it. Now the answer to me is that we have to uh, promote a sustainable mindset. We have to look to build lasting things that conserve the manufacturing cycle or call it into play less frequently. And that can go for you know, atoms and things like that, but it can also go for digital products. The future-friendly campaign, some of you may be aware of, it's like a couple of years old. Um, uh, it's mostly you know, a group of web developers came up with it, and it's uh, essentially a manifesto to say that we should believe in device diversity and we should support device diversity. And if we build products in a scalable way that can be accessed by a wide range of devices, then we also safeguard ourselves against what may happen next. We're more likely to be able to support the next wave of devices that are coming. And, you know, I think this campaign makes a lot of sense from kind of a, you know, an engineering point of view, but I also see it as nothing less than a manifesto for sustainable product design. If we adhere to it, then we help to teach our clients the value of investing in sustainable design, because they don't need to keep redesigning their systems every 18 months when a new wave of technology comes along and suddenly theirs is obsolete. That is called into, into play less frequently, and as such, return on investment is better, the expense of maintaining these systems is reduced. And that way, they understand for themselves the business value of sustainability. So hopefully I've convinced you that there are some areas um, of our work that demand further ethical attention than we're giving them. The question then becomes, how do we train ourselves to be better at this stuff, to think more in that way? 
Now, I did say earlier there are no clear answers, but I do think there are some principles uh, that we can turn to. Uh, just like design principles, you know, we can use these as a, a, a guiding star to help steer us in uncertain waters. And the first is simply to pause and to think. I think the designer who is absolutely certain of his conduct is the most dangerous of all. Meanwhile, the responsible designer is the one who thinks that she's never been responsible enough. So we have a duty to recognize tough ethical decisions and to pause, to give them the time and the respect that they deserve. Am I sure that this is the right course of action? What are the implications for my users and for others in that system? Who's going to benefit? Who might it harm? And then how can I try and mitigate that harm? Now, examining our own actions in this way, it takes courage. It's easy to skip it, but the choice not to rationalize our actions is itself a moral choice. So I think we have to do this kind of stuff, even if it takes us to uncomfortable places. That's good. That means we're getting to the heart of ethical challenge. And sometimes when you do pause to consider uh, your, your, your options and your ethical uh, integrity, I suppose, then the answers can be surprising. They may cause you to question your own beliefs, your own values, your own uh, perception of what common sense is, I suppose. Because unethical design happens, in the words of Mike Montero, not due to malicious intent, but with no intent at all. Every now and then, um, discussion of ethics in the design community tends to swing toward the idea of codifying conduct, to have a code of ethics or sort of a Hippocratic oath for design. I've seen this come up a few times. I've never found that argument quite convincing. Because for me, ethics requires fluidity of thinking. And codes generally demand specificity. And as such, they can easily become slogans. And I think slogans are dangerous things. They're slippery. They're seductive. They sound right. They sound profound on first glance. But they lack the nuance, they lack the context that lies at the heart of ethical debate. One example is the now famous statement that if you're not paying for a product, then you yourself are the product being sold. Now, of course, I'll confess bias here. Uh, you know, I, I used to work for a company that offers a service that's free for the end user. But I'm going to question, is that slogan valid? Because the implication is that all two-sided businesses, as they're known, are unethical. That would include free newspapers, social networks, TV channels, insurance brokers, search engines, comparison sites. We also need to recognize, if we believe that the only wholesome business model is one that's funded by the end user, we need to recognize the politics inherent in that statement. It itself is exclusionary of the poor, of the developing world, of children, of people without a credit card, and so on. Of course, to me, what matters is the value exchange. What is the user getting, and what are they trading, and are they aware of the protections uh, that are in place if they exist? Now, that outcome certainly can be negative. It can also be positive. The key is here that we have to analyze everything on, on its merits. We can't fall back on um, smart-sounding slogans. Sloganeering, for me, actually illustrates a lack of ethical consideration, this idea of a blanket morality without an understanding of the context for these decisions. So I think if we learn to distrust slogans, we actually become more ethically aware as a community. Another useful technique is to try and universalize our thinking. And that really means to try and look at our conduct in a wider context. One question we can ask ourselves is, what if everyone in the world did what I'm about to do? Would a world where that action is common, would it be a better place or a worse place? 
Now, to an extent, what that's doing is practicing uh, what's known as utilitarianism, the idea that you judge actions, actions on how much they offer happiness or minimize pain. That's a reasonable concept, and it's one that seems to be still fairly current in ethical circles. It's, you know, it's, a, it's a decent rule of thumb. Here's another principle for universalizing your thought. This is from uh, Immanuel Kant. Treat humanity never simply as a means, but at the same time as an end. Now, to me, this means essentially recognizing that users aren't there for you to achieve your goals. You know, they have their own goals in mind. We need to respect that every human has worth. You can't disregard that. You can't treat these people as beings um, you know, for, for our own service only. We have to work with them to achieve their goals as well, and we all get closer. Now, I think this is the closest thing I've seen to a guiding principle for ethical consideration in, in digital design. It speaks to a lot of the stuff that I've mentioned. Scale, disruption, persuasion. It's really about ensuring users get a fair deal in this kind of thing. And I found it a really helpful formulation uh, for my own work. The fourth principle I'll mention is the idea of essentially wanting to put your name on something. In the background, you see the signatures uh, that were embossed, uh, that were actually sort of printed inside the case of the original Apple Mac. Um, now, these were people who were so proud of what they'd created that they put their reputations online and said, yep, that was me, that was us, that was our team. Uh, and I actually like the fact it's on the inside, because if anything, that's a bit bolder, because probably the only time you open it up is when it's gone wrong. <laughs> and they're still saying, yep, that was us, we own up to this, we're still proud of this machine, damn it. You know, I, I, I really like that. Now, how much of your work would you put your name to? You know, would you want strangers to know that it was you who designed that product that they use? You know, in this era where the cult of the MVP is still very much prevalent, uh, how much of our work is half-assed? How much of it is rushed? Um, certainly some of mine has been. And not just strangers, not, not, you know, not just how would we react if strangers knew, but would we tell those nearest and dearest to us? There's something called the grandchild test, which is essentially in 40 years' time when you've got you know, a grandkid on your knee or whatever it may be, would you happily tell them, oh, yes, no, I did that. You know, when I was faced with this situation, this is how I responded. Will our successors say that we as a, as a generation, as a community, have acted correctly when it came to the environment, when it came to privacy, when it came to issues of social justice? The final step, then, is to complete the circle. If we've paused to recognize the ethical complexity of a situation, if we've decided to go deeper than the slogans that promise the simple answers, if we try to universalize our thinking to give it that broader context, and then if we've come to decisions that we're proud to put our names to, the next step has to be to talk about what we've learned. And obviously, this is my intention today, because I think it's about time that we started to talk about this stuff seriously. I think we should find peers and colleagues who do that. There are people committed to doing the right thing in the industry, and some of them are actually in what you may consider the most unlikely places and most unlikely companies. We need to, and in turn, those efforts will nourish our own. So I hope in my small way I've convinced you to start talking and sharing ideas around this a little bit more, blog posts or talks or maybe, maybe even form ethics. That way we encourage others to examine ethical issues within their own work, and the previously abstract and invisible can eventually become blinding. We hope you liked this presentation from UX Australia 2015. 
For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.